Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to another installment of New Books in Military History. I'm your host, Jay Lockenauer. With the 100th anniversary of the outbreak of World War I approaching in 2014, I suspect we'll begin to see more and more books on the subject. One of the early arrivals, if you can call it that, is Charles Townsend's Desert Hell, the British Invasion of Mesopotamia. It's a really a fascinating book and one I'm really glad I had an opportunity to read. Uh, It's a detailed political and military history of the British invasion and occupation of Mesopotamia, modern-day Iraq, beginning in 1914 and wrapping up in the early 1920s with the relative stabilization of the modern state of of Iraq. And it's a a book that's not about the current situation in Iraq, but it's one – as as a good history uh, should do, it, it's one that informs us about the the background and the antecedents of some of the problems that we're seeing today. In the context of World War One, I, I think it also helps to remind us how important that conflict was in shaping not just the modern world, but obviously the in shaping the the history, the subsequent history of the Middle East. The book is beautifully written and relies on an impressive variety of sources. Uh, They're primarily British, but they're drawn from all levels of the British government, from the the India office to the colonial and foreign offices in London. Um, Townsend also draws on an impressive variety of soldiers' letters, memoirs, uh, accounts of the battles from officers and soldiers who were involved. So you really get a, a detailed picture of what's going on. One of the ironies of the British invasion of Mesopotamia is that it was really a sideshow. It was quite distant from the main battlefields of Europe where um, the war itself was being truly won or lost. So that accounts in some ways for the relative dearth of historical scholarship, but also for the some of the hardships that the soldiers endured in waging this campaign with relatively few resources. Uh, no one on the British side was willing to invest much in it. And yet, as as anyone can surmise, this was a, a campaign that had enormous implications for the future. It's a book that well deserves our attention. So here's the interview. Uh, thanks for joining me on another installment of New Books in Military History. With me today is uh, Professor Charles Townsend, a professor at Keele University in the UK, who has just published Desert Hell, the British Invasion of Mesopotamia. that came out with Harvard University Press in 2011. Uh, thanks for joining me today, Charles. It's a pleasure. Um, I'd like for you to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, sort of an intellectual biography, how you came to, to write this particular book. Yeah, well, I suppose it's quite a roundabout route. Um, I started out a very long time ago, 40-odd years ago, um, as a doctoral candidate studying the Anglo-Irish conflicts uh, that took place just about the end of the First World War. Um, And uh, I published a book on that and then a number of other things on Irish history. 
Um, and I kind of developed, because it was the kind of war it was, um, it was a peculiar challenge to the British Army, which obviously had been for four years fighting probably the biggest war that ever happened up to that time. And then it had to try and adjust to a very, very small-scale uh, guerrilla insurgency in Ireland. And I found the, the process of adjustment a very interesting one to study, but also some of the underlying ideas. I got very interested in, really, in the basic idea of order, which kind of underlies in an unspoken way the British approach to what they call the restoration of order. Uh, it's a kind of convention in military aid to the civil power. Um, but I found that nobody ever defined what order was, and it was just assumed that uh, army officers would kind of understand what it was they were supposed to do when they were sent into one of these very complicated uh, civil conflicts. So I did a bit more work sort of broadening out. Uh, I suppose the whole study of um, reaction to unusual civil emergencies. I wrote a bit on martial law, for example, which is a, a concept deeply problematic in the Anglo-Saxon legal tradition. Um, and so I, I eventually ended up writing a book in the 1980s, a sort of comparative study of British attempts to restore order in various parts of the world, starting from Ireland, but also in the subcontinent, um, the Far East and the Middle East. And at that point, I began to get very interested in the Middle East and the particular trajectory of British power in that region. And so I developed a kind of second string to the Irish studies, um, uh, with a particular kind of focus for many years. I taught a course here at Kiel on the British mandate in Palestine uh, and the kinds of problems that the British faced in trying to <laughs> restore or bring or create sort of law and order in a very politically explosive, um, very small but politically explosive area. So I was kind of pursuing the idea of writing some kind of major study of the British mandate in Palestine. Uh, but then in conversation uh, with uh, an editor, Faber Faber, a British um, publisher, uh, we got talking about the possibility of looking at the Mesopotamia campaign again. Um, this is in the immediate aftermath of the invasion, coalition invasion. Uh, Faber had actually published, I think, probably the only serious military study of the war by um, an army officer called Colonel Barker uh, back in the 1960s. And since then, nothing very serious had been done on it. And the more we thought about it, the more it did seem to be a big uh, lacuna in kind of military historical studies. Um, so that's about how I came to it. I can't claim to have done much work on Iraq itself before, but I had studied the oddly enough, not the, the formal military campaign, but the uh, the insurgency of 1920 uh, as part of a study I did on the development of uh, what the British call air policing uh, the, or air substitution, the use of aircraft to replace ground troops to try and maintain order or create order, if you like, in vast uh, and inhospitable areas of the, of the empire. So I, I've done a little bit of work on it so that it were backwards. I had to project myself backwards from 1920 to 1914. So that's a rather roundabout story, but that's about how I got there. 
Well, it gives us a lot to talk about. I mean, I think one of the really interesting things about the book is is not it's not that it's presentist, but clearly there's so much in there that relates to um, the current situation in Iraq, especially since 2003, and and precisely that air policing uh, issue and the use of predator drones and so forth. It has this kind of analog um, in today's conflict. Uh, I guess. I mean, I I do. I'm kind of very cautious, like most historians, I suppose, about drawing direct parallels with the present. But uh, in some ways, in this situation, they are pretty much irresistible. Sure, yeah. Sure. Well, any reader with with his or her eyes open, I think, will will pick up on that. And of course, the other issue, if you want to talk about order, is we could we could talk about how London's holding up these days. But maybe we should leave that one. <laughs> Uh, yes, well, it was peaceful when I last looked. <laughs> but no, there, there have been some strange events recently, which may have set up a deep sense of puzzlement in the British body politic, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, that'll unfold over many years to come, I feel. Yeah. Well, let's um, tell us a little bit about how the the British intervention in Mesopotamia got started, because as you as you said in your introduction, it's it's both a military and a political question that you're dealing with here. And what were the what were the military and political problems that they that the British were trying to solve? Well, yeah, one of the things I tried to do in the book as a whole, uh, and kind of in distinction uh, to that earlier study, which. I I can't remember what was the title of it in the, the American edition. The, the English edition was called um, The Neglected War. Um, but as I said, that was really by a military man, and it was a very military kind of history. Uh, there were also some political studies of the origins of Iraq. But what I wanted to try and do was to create a kind of dynamic uh, compound of the two. And whether I succeeded or not, well, that's up to readers to judge, I guess. Uh, as you say, it's a, it's, it's a political, I suppose all wars are political, of course, as <laughs> classics uh, rightly say, or at least they have to be, if they don't have a political rationale, then they are strictly meaningless. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean to say they're planned. Again, Clausewitz says that the prime responsibility of the statesman is, in fact, to grasp the nature of the war they're embarking on. Now, I think this is a classic case of where the statesman failed to do so. Uh, they planned a mission which was actually very limited in scope at one level, but unlimited at another. And what I argue in the book, in the earlier section, is the kind of instability of this mission um, that produced a, a campaign that was really strictly unplanned uh, and probably a, an early example of what we might call mission creep nowadays where once the force is put in place then uh, stresses and threats develop around it and then the whole perhaps, nature of the, of the project changes. The basic mission actually was very simple at one level uh, the British had laid off interfering in the, the Ottoman Empire for many, many years. They had to be acted as a kind of international guarantor of Ottoman Turkey against the threats of powers which were trying to make inroads on it, primarily Russia. Um, and so it hadn't, the British had never really developed any kind of plan for uh, a successor state or any kind of post-Turkish regime, because as I say, their objective was to maintain Turkey. I mean, they knew Turkey was a very unsatisfactory um, 
set up. Uh, they'd spend 100 years trying to persuade it to reform and to adopt more kind of approach, what they would have considered appropriate Western methods of administration. Uh, so there's a, they have a, a strong sense of what's wrong with the Turkish Empire. Incidentally, this terminology, it kind of does seem to shift back and forth a bit. I think I'm actually guilty, like most people are using, and most contemporaries actually are using two or three different ways of describing Turkey. I think most people call it Turkey, but strictly, of course, it was uh, the Ottoman state. Um, but by the time of 1914, when the First World War broke out, it had come under the control of a group of young military men, actually, who were out-and-out Turkish nationalists, so the Turkish uh, dimension of the Ottoman state was becoming more and more emphasized. Uh, whether that justifies on calling it Turkey, I'm not sure. But as I say, the British, um, they... They had to make up policy really on the hoof when the First World War approached and it became clear that in spite of years of supporting Turkey, um, the Turks eventually were going to decide to take the German side in the war. Uh, so I think the, the, the absence of any political pre-planning is very important. Uh, it's a kind of total strategic revolution when Turkey went on to the wrong side in the war. That probably doesn't explain um, why the British... Uh, had done so little, so little preparation, uh, but that was a kind of standard excuse. Uh, all they had, all they, the only real strategic interest they had in the area was not actually in Turkish territory itself, but in the neighbouring South Persia, where oil had been being pumped for about ten years, I guess. Uh, and the British had a, a strong economic interest in the Anglo-Persian oil company and its installations at Abadan. And it was really one of the key objectives was to just secure these oil resources. Uh, that was actually pretty easy to do because um, there were just no other threatening forces in the area. Turkish forces in the area um, were very weak and the Germans were an awful long way away. Um, so those oil resources could probably have been secured by a, a, a very small military force. Now, the problem was that there was a larger um, political um, context to this, I guess, which is a sort of underlying British idea, which again had never really come out in the open, but which had been festering for years, um, that... Uh, there was a deep-seated antipathy between the Arabs and the Turkish rule and their Turkish rulers, and that the Arabs at some point would break out and, and, and rebel against Turkish rule. Um, and there's also a, an underlying anxiety uh, that the war itself could be seen in the eyes of Muslims across the world as a war uh, of a Christian power against a Muslim power. So there's, there are these, because Turkey was the only surviving significant Muslim state in 1914, so there are, these are really big, big issues which kind of can't quite be brought into focus, but which are shifting around uneasily in the background. So this sort of small force was supposed to be doing something a little bit bigger than merely protecting the oil resources. Uh, it was supposed to be showing that the British uh, 
uh, were there in the Persian Gulf that, um, they, that, you know, that, that uh, the Arabs would be impressed by British military commitment and uh, eventually it was hoped to come over to the, to the British side, thus incidentally avoiding the possibility that they might join a kind of Muslim coalition against this kind of British power. So something had to, all the time, as soon as the force arrived, it, it was given this task of somehow impressing the Arabs and making sure that the Arabs um, didn't uh, turn against Britain ultimately in the war. And because that was an enormous sort of macro-strategic project whose contours were almost impossible to define what you needed to do. You know, how, how did you read Arab opinion? Incredibly hard to do. And, and then what did you do about it? So there is, as I say, this kind of instability uh, force with a, with a very limited mission, but also an undefined one, which ultimately, once they arrived, uh, led to some people saying that the only way to deal with this larger mission was to keep pushing on so as to keep on impressing the Arabs. Uh, so every time we won a little victory with the Turkish army, which proved to be very easy to do in the early days, um, they would they would go on and on. Nobody would ask, well, should we stop? Have we achieved that? Should we get objectives and should we stop here? There was an assumption that you, you could almost you could never stop. That was that was dangerous and uh, it kind of went beyond any of the political intentions of the, the people who planned the expedition. Well, of course, it's implicit in what you just said, but looming in the background of all this is, is of course, India, right? I mean, that's the strategic yeah. interest is not just oil, but the the um, security of India, and of course, the uh, the Muslim issue in India looms large when they're dealing with the Arabs. And you get the sense from the book that there's always looming in the background this concern, you know, relating all the way back to the mutiny, at least that uh, Muslims in India were uh, were a factor that had to be dealt with, even in this relatively distant area. Yeah, yeah, that's precisely the constituency which the, the British are worried about. Uh, because, as we often pointed out, although well, Turkey was the biggest independent Muslim state, Britain was actually a bigger Muslim state. It had more Muslim subjects uh, than the Sultan of Turkey did. Um, and, yeah, so the, the, the fear of the impact of uh, a war against a Muslim state on the opinion of Muslims in the subcontinent, um, yeah, that was a huge um, kind of anxiety. As you say, it goes right back to the mutiny, and I think there's, a, there's a, just a, a deep feeling of a fear of uh, the possibility of some really, really large jihad. Uh, the British have faced sort of mini jihads in various parts of the world over the previous few um, generations. But the idea of a sort of big one that would, would lead to an explosion in India uh, was very, very frightening. Whether there was ever any great possibility of that is another question. I'm not too sure about that. And and it's not just an undefined mission that the British have in front of them, but there are these factions, and you, you talk about the relationship between the colonial office and the India office, and then, of course, the army kind of plays into it, and, and uh, various people, various po- English political actors have different um, viewpoints about what should happen. Yes, they do. Well, because once the thing that's going... Um then eventually there has to be some discussion about what should be done with the uh, the territories which are gradually being liberated um, 
<laughs> I'm sort of saying that in inverted commas. I think the term is used a little bit, but actually the British are rather cautious about not talking about liberation, partly because there is, as you say, this kind of departmental conflict between, I think principally it's between the sort of uh, foreign office type people who are very interested in uh, cultivating the Arab world in promoting a kind of Arab successor state or states after the defeat of Turkey uh, and who want to be involved in promoting Arab nationalism for that reason. And the people, the administrators from India, who have a completely different set of priorities who incidentally don't believe there's any possibility of setting up an Arab state anyway uh, because they believe the Arabs are so politically undeveloped that they are just not in any position to, uh, to uh, create uh, or uh, run political institutions at that point. But at the same time, it's obviously not in their interest that the Arabs should achieve anything like independence because they have a kind of project to incorporate part of Mesopotamia, at least, in the British Empire. I think the, the Indian administration really wanted to annex the Basra province, and they also wanted to control Baghdad. Uh, and some of the wilder fringes, uh, I think it's never close to the centre of decision-making, but there are some, some not entirely lunatic fringe ideas about large-scale colonisation uh, of the Two rivers land, you know, where with surplus uh, population from India at the end of the war. And this came to be seen by some people as India's kind of just reward for the sacrifices it was making for the empire uh, during the war, that it would be given, as it were, a colony of its own, an overspill site. Um, uh, that's a fairly staggering proposition, actually, if you think about its, its implications. But as I say, I don't think anybody really at the centre of British uh, power entertained that. But people on the fringes kind of certainly did. And people at the centre certainly couldn't make up their mind, and this is very important thing, what kind of policy direction in a, at a strategic level uh, British policies would take. So they, they, they take some ages to work out even the most fundamental um, elementary kind of policy demands. Uh, and even when they'd worked them out, they took them a long time to, to actually impose them. And what happened during the course of the war is that actually Mesopotamia or rather the Basra province and Baghdad province, which is what the British controlled by 1916-1917, are being run by Indian officials, and they're being run, as it were, on Indian principles, uh, even though London has already declared that it's not supposed to be and that they mustn't introduce Indian methods of administration. Um, they mustn't presume that the British are going to run the country on these perfectionist administrative lines. They basically, their task is to prepare for some kind of Arab regime. But they announced that as policy, but they left in place, uh, actually running the country, people who absolutely didn't believe in that policy and who uh, uh, avidly trying to construct what they thought of as a kind of um, ideal administration that would be Britain's 
contribution to the, uh, the sort of restoration of civilization in, in this ancient, uh, I think, birthplace of civilization is how they saw it. And a lot of people, a lot of British people saw themselves as completing some kind of world historical arc, I think, by sort of coming back and, and rebuilding civilization there. Um, so that's a, that's a massive task, really open-ended. Sort of not so much a state building task as a society building task, which would have taken generations, really. So, we have people on the ground who believed in that. There are people in London who just couldn't imagine undertaking a task that was so huge and costly. So, it's a very um, unsatisfactory situation, typical of the British, one would have said, uh, that, that they take them so long to to even create an agency which was capable of constructing a single coherent policy. I think that really doesn't happen until after the end of the war. Well, it's, uh, it, you're giving listeners, I think, a sense of the, the complexity of the topic that you've taken on, and it's a, it's a credit to your, to your research and your writing that you, that you um, clarify in the book, the, the various factions, as I've mentioned, the, you know, not only in India and in London, but as you just referred to, the people on the ground, people like, I guess, um, T.E. Lawrence plays a, a small part, but there was a woman whose name escapes me now who, who was really critical, it seemed like, in, in formulating – pardon me? Gertrude Bell? Yes, exactly. Exactly, uh, and formulating exactly. policy as an as an expert in this particular region who who was physically there. Yeah, can you um, tell us a little bit about her? I mean, and, and gee, yes, actually on the ground, as you say, Lawrence was there briefly. Um, I, I, Bell was from the same kind of stable, I think, as Lawrence. This is the the group of um, pro Arab. Uh, I think they are Arabists, uh, sort of semi-intellectuals who um, uh, formed the Arab Bureau in Cairo in the early months of the war. Their perspective, as I say, very much is building up uh, Arab nationalism and preparing the way for an Arab successor state. But, but if you look at the situation in Mesopotamia, Gertrude Bell is there. Um, I think really her function is a little hard to be absolutely sure about. She was a kind of uh, assistant to the, um, well, yeah. Um, <laughs> Freelance. The, 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 the rank of Sir Percy Cox. Cox is a crucial figure, a bit of a grey imperial administrator. Uh, he's really the political officer who is attached to the military expedition, but he's already a much more significant figure than that. He's already um, the resident for the Persian Gulf, and thus the sort of control of British policy over a huge area of the Middle East. Uh, so he's a, a, already a very senior imperial administrator. I don't think he needed a, an oriental assistant, as it were. Uh, there used to be a thing in the British Empire where you... Where the, Governors or high commissioners would be given an Oriental secretary, so called. That was somebody who understood the local language and uh, was a bit of an amateur anthropologist and so on, and could act as an advisor. But Gertrude Bell, I think, supposedly is employed as that. But as I say, Cox didn't really need her. He already knew all that stuff. Um, but he did get on quite well with her. But, you know, but Cox, as I say, is a, is a crucial figure because he's the guy who first says, we must go to Baghdad. We can't stop in Basra. Once we once we got there, um, the the need to 
bring the Arabs on side or stop them opposing us uh, means we must go as far as we possibly can. We must kind of get a grip on the situation. We must impress them. Um, and that, of course, reflected the fact that um, I'm not quite sure what the village expected, but I think they certainly expected the Arabs to be quite friendly to them when they arrived because, as I said a while ago, they, they had this idea that the Arabs were fed up with Turkish rule and they would welcome the removal of Turkish rule. In the event, it didn't turn out quite like that. It turned out that the Arabs were extremely suspicious of these uh, Christian invaders. Um, and although it's true they were fairly hostile to Turkish rule. Um, they certainly weren't enamored of British liberation either in, in Mesopotamia. So the British, I mean, virtually no Arabs outside the sort of commercial middle class of Basra rallied to the British when they arrived, and vast numbers uh, actually openly declared themselves against the British. So it was a real problem. I mean, the, the, the political scenario turned out very different from what I think many had hoped or expected. So Cox's solution to that is to just keep going. Uh, and that, that's what produces, unfortunately, well, or fortunately, we don't know if we look at it, an ever-increasing area uh, under British administrative control. Um, and that's a problem that kind of has to be solved. That forces the British to come up with some kind of policy because eventually um, they've got at least half of Mesopotamia under their control. They've got to acquire food resources. They've got actually to administer law and order, if you like. The whole Turkish government has disappeared, taking all its written records with it, if they ever existed in the first place. There's a kind of total administrative vacuum. Um, and so the people on the ground assumed enormous significance from that point of view because they actually had to set up the structures, however elementary, that would enable day-to-day -day life to be conducted. Uh, and that's why really the key person is Cox's Indian uh, official assistant, Arnold Wilson, Katie Wilson, uh, who is Cox's formal deputy and really the actual administrator of Mesopotamia for most of the time, because actually after a while Cox was dispatched to Persia to try and sort things out there. So really, um, as I say, the, 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 the policy on the ground is being decided by someone who I think just had a, a very simple idea that Britain had a responsibility to uh, take this administrative vacuum and build uh, a, a good, uh, respectable, um, honest, uncorrupt system that would stand as a, as a demonstration of, of Britain's administrative capacity, I suppose. There's a great uh, passage which which relates to that, and I think it's one of the the real kind of general contributions of the book is is this phrase you say efficient, honest administration was in effect the British ideology. This is on on page 45, and I think yeah. that just sums up nicely the you know the the British approach in so many different areas in this area in particular, and it and it and it explains the problem that they face. I mean, um, you mentioned yeah. the notion of a vacuum. It was quite literally in 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 Basra, the troops yeah. were sucked into the town itself to prevent looting because there was yeah. no more um, order being kept. Yeah. So maybe... They had to make policy up on their feet. Um, but as I said, uh, it is strange that the government in London 
had so little idea of what was actually being done in Mesopotamia, or, or it would announce sort of policy um, priorities, but then it really didn't follow them up. It never, it never really made the effort to make sure that the administration um, in Basra and Baghdad wasn't doing, wasn't departing from its instructions. Uh, so. Uh, it's, it's, I, mean, I think it's partly, of course, that they're, they're fighting a vast war uh, for survival in northern France. And from the London perspective, Mesopotamia does look like the, the other side of a backwater strategically. Uh, it was not really right until the end of the war that I think the, the sort of larger strategic significance of Mesopotamia uh, kind of began to be clear to the British government. So it's, it is, it's a, it's a, uh, I mean, obviously it's, it, there are reasons why it took so long to, to develop a policy. But again, I think it just shows that uh, governments do, <laughs> they do need to be aware that they, they can't take their eye off the board, or they can't, they can't initiate uh, strategic moves without providing the resources, not just the physical resources, although in Mesopotamia that was a crucial issue, but as it were, the sort of um, resources of willpower, if you like, the sort of the, the policy determination that actually means that somebody will be making sure that you have some coherent objective and that you are, that the steps you're taking actually are going to lead towards that objective. Yeah, you, um, this brings back the title of the Barker book. It, you mentioned the neglected war was the English yeah. title. The American title was the bastard war. So kind of reflecting right. this this neglect and the physical yeah. conditions um, reflect that that neglect as well. I mean, the the conditions in Basra remain where where the British enter first remain abysmal for quite a long time. I mean, the port facilities, the the state of supplies, military supplies, and and then not to mention for civilians. Yeah, and. It, Yes, well, that was um, yes, that was one of the uh, elements of neglect, of course, that Barker was uh, talking about. And I suppose the bastard war uh, that that, may, that, that um, phrase might have come from some testimony to the Mesopotamia Commission of Inquiry. I think because one of the problems that the people on the ground thought was, was, was serious was that it was uh, no single department or authority really had taken responsibility and so this sort of batting the problem between various departments meant that uh, the people on the ground were always short-changed. The first problem was really that India, which the Indian government, um, which of course was the British government of India, um, which had sent the expeditionary force, just didn't have the military resources to provision it um, uh, to, to the level that was required for uh, sort of 1914-style war, uh, there was a, the Indian Army was militarily very weak, but it also worked on a, an incredibly parsimonious system of, of um, allocation of, uh, well, weapons and supplies, actually. Uh, matters of red tape, it was incredibly difficult to, you know, invent it for anything. It took months, and then you probably would get the wrong thing to live. That always administrative defects got transferred to Mesopotamia. And of course, that was deadly there, because um, there was a crying need for um, 
weren't really masses of military material because the country had nothing. It literally is, well, it's not all a desert, it's not all a desert and swamp, but certainly, I mean, if you just take something as simple as timber, um, you know, to, to build huts or all, I mean, uh, even to light fires. I mean, there is virtually no timber in the area that the army was occupying for the first three years of the war. Everything had to be pulled out from India. And that's right at the bottom of a, of a long list of requirements, I mean, starting from you know, troops and weapons and so on. So it, it's actually a, a campaign that required more supply than almost any uh, other campaign in the war, I think. And it's being conducted by the administration with the least capacity to deliver supply. So the result was, uh, it's very easy to see, it also in the benefit of hindsight, it was inevitably a, a tragic um, failure to provide, well, uh, I mean, not just sufficient transport, but medical facilities. So the campaign, which started out very well, from the point of view of getting easy successes, uh, eventually ran, ran into overstretch and into disaster uh, in late 1915, the first attempt to capture Baghdad, uh, which was conducted by a force of about 10,000 troops, I mean, an incredibly tiny force. Um, oddly enough, though, I mean, even if they'd had more troops, they almost certainly couldn't have supplied them. So uh, it, it, the whole situation is kind of absurd as the basis of a major strategic move. Well, it's, uh, it's, I'm glad to have made the transition to more military discussion because, of course, this is a new books in military history, right? And so probably yeah, sure. quite a few people will come to it. And it is very much a, a, a military history and, and um, drawn from a, a really impressive array of sources ranging from, you know, the strategic operations at the highest level down to the, the soldiers on the ground and, and their experiences um, yeah. in, in appropriate places. What very well selected. One, one thing you mentioned that... Yeah, I tried to get that kind of range, yeah. Uh, and one thing that was perhaps ironic, uh, given that it's the British, is the the critical lack of shipping. You mentioned transport, but but shipping, yeah. um, shallow draft boats that could go up the rivers in, in the area were just utterly lacking. Yeah, and uh, again, in the first instance, that might not be very surprising, but I think what was shocking and eventually scandalous was the amount of time it took to remedy. Uh, the deficiencies. Uh, I mean, it was really clear from the very first landing um, that virtually movement on land was virtually impossible and everything was going to have to take place on the river. Um, and it's clear right from the start um, that unless you prepare to build railways there, which actually the very first commander, Arthur Barrett, um, did ask for a Narragansett railway to be built in the first instance. If that had happened, it would probably have transformed the whole campaign. But um, predictably, the Indian government refused to to uh, approve such a wild expenditure because they thought it couldn't be justified in terms of the use made of the railway after the war. Crazy judgment in the, in the beginning of a military campaign, but that seems to be the way Indian governmental logic worked. So yeah, everybody is very painfully aware of the shortage. Uh, right from the start, and yet it persisted all the way through to the end of 1915. It, it caused um, the failure of the, the drive to capture Baghdad, and then it pretty much guaranteed the failure of the attempts to relieve 
put when the the, the force that fell back from Baghdad was um, besieged. So it, it's, and even when they, yeah, I think one of the worst stories, uh, which you may recall, is that uh, even when boats were delivered in any reasonable numbers, it, it turned out that the Indian authorities had changed the specification from those demanded uh, or asked for by the uh, army in Mesopotamia. Um, they changed the design of the bow to something they thought was more appropriate, but which actually didn't work on the takers. Um, so it's a most extraordinary and horrifying story, which sadly um, was unpicked in great detail eventually by a parliamentary commission of inquiry. One of those things that soldiers think is a very bad idea in the middle of wars. Um, I'm not I think partly on the grounds that it might give encouragement to the enemy, which I suppose this one might have done. But also, I, I mean, I think that in a sense, uh, soldiers should welcome them because in this case, it just did reveal how horrendously the troops on the ground were sold short by the, the Indian government, you know, by the, the absolute failure to take any interest in their obvious needs. So I think that uh, it, it was a, uh, an appalling story of uh, utter inability to see or to recognize the scale of the problem and do anything about it. And it seems like the, the military campaign... Um it was it was on such a scale or i'm trying to think how to how to phrase this it was um that a relatively small uh, uh surplus of military equipment would have made a huge difference given oh, that yes. that you know the uh, control of a relatively large area could depend on you know one old fortifi- fortified oasis or a bend in the river or you know it seemed very small scale in some ways yes oh i mean and compared with the scale of resources being applied in other theaters of the war, and, of course, those that were applied eventually in Mesopotamia itself, um, too late, if you like, um, well, certainly too late to save Kurt. Or, um, but, yes, I mean, we'd be just talking about a few dozen um, like shallow draft vessels uh, in the early point. I mean, it would just be a drop in the ocean of, of British military provision during the war. Uh, oh, yes, you're absolutely right. I mean, we are t- it's a small, uh, as I say, there were only 10,000 troops in the force that made the first attempt to capture Baghdad. Um, but, uh, yeah, and the difference between them being able to... Um, maintain any kind of effective operational capacity and not was was a matter of probably of a few dozen boats. Uh, so, yeah, there, there was literally, there was certainly no excuse in terms uh, on each other grounds that the, that the demands of the campaign were unfulfillable. They were very fulfillable if, if only the necessity had been grasped. Yeah. And a few artillery pieces here and there would have made a, a big difference too. Mm-hmm. A few artillery pieces here well, and there. Oh, uh, yes, the artillery. Um, 
Well, generally, the British managed to outgun the Turks in terms of in, in terms of artillery, and they did have. I mean, they had warships that that worked well enough. I think. Uh, I, I kind of. I mean, the, the naval flotilla on the river, which was a sort of mini, a very strange story of naval warfare. Um, I don't know. It's not quite unique in in uh, the history of the war, but it's certainly unusual. Um, most of the time, it was extraordinarily. Um, successful. The, I think the, 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 the perhaps the biggest. Well, I already mentioned the, the idea of building a light railway, you know, which is by British standards was an elementary thing to do. I mean, it was a sort of fundamental imperial kind of project. Certainly, would not have been um, intolerably expensive. That would certainly have absolutely transformed the, the supply situation for the attempted relief of Kurt. The other thing, aircraft. I guess that. Um, uh, it's, it's a problem in, in various theaters of the war, but I think Mesopotamia was probably more underprovided um, than, than any. It was what they realized as time went on was that the aircraft were peculiarly useful in, in the kind of terrain uh, that Mesopotamia presented, it presented terrible problems really to normal forms of transport. Um, aircraft were a sort of miraculous solution to this, um, both for um, reconnaissance and um, striking capacity, and, and indeed couldn't even have been supply. I mean, if, if the thing had been taken seriously, there's an interesting debate, I think, um, which has never been really worked out. I can't claim I have worked it through about whether it was at all would have been at all possible to supply the besieged garrison at Kut um, with significant quantities of supplies that would have enabled it to keep going for another few weeks. Um, there are those who argue that the aircraft simply didn't have the technical capacity to deliver the, the required volumes. But there are those who it was another example where quite simple adjustments that could have been made and, uh, and which would have transformed their capacity just weren't made. So I think there are just, yeah, there are many areas in which um, really quite straightforward um, uh, shifts would have had, would have had a, a dramatic effect on the, the quality of life and indeed, yeah, the survival capacity of, of the troops. We had a terrible, absolutely terrible time. I mean, it was the most, uh, from the point of view of, um, of the British troops there, and I guess not much better for the Indian troops, who were the majority of the, uh, the imperial horses there. I mean, it was just a shocking, uh, appalling climate to have to exist in. And I mean, as the troops nowadays are all too well aware, but they do have a lot more creature comforts nowadays. I've talked to a number um, of people who've been out in Iraq and who just they talk about uh, what an utterly ghastly um, climate it is, even with the uh, best kind of modern age. But there was nothing, there was no understanding indeed of a lot of the climatic problems at the time. Um, there was very little understanding of dehydration, for example. Um, so it was it was an awful uh, environment in which to, uh, to live and die. 
well, from the very beginning of the book, I mean, your your prose is marvelous as well, but you tap into some really um, uh, colorful writing about the about the campaign and about the region. You have this mm. a quote from uh, Robert Byron. This is on page nine, describing the terrain. He said, it's a mud plain so flat that a single heron reposing on one leg beside some rare trickle of water in a ditch looks as tall as a wireless aerial. From this plain rise villages of mud and cities of mud. The rivers flow with liquid mud. The air is composed of mud refined into a gas. And he go, goes on and on. And one yeah. gets a, a sense right away of the, the really miserable circumstances yeah. for, the, for the soldiers. Well, he was able to be rather ironic about it, but uh, that mud was a deathly thing uh, for, for thousands of men, yeah. Yeah, and just have to advance against enemy positions. And they, I was surprised to see the, the British so complimentary of the Turkish um, uh, entrenchments. They, they didn't seem they, – they thought the Turks would just run away, or at least the Arab auxiliaries especially would run away at the first uh, shot, but they, they were – they could dig themselves in fairly well. Yeah. Well, actually, in the early days, that's exactly what they did. And, of course, um, predictably, I guess, or it's, it's, it's something you have to – Try and arm yourself against the Vinnies did become overconfident. Um, because the first troops they were facing, I mean, they had very few, uh, very small Turkish components. They were mainly, um, there were a couple of Arab, basically Arab divisions, the Ottoman army, which, um, for various reasons, um, seemed to perform um, fairly. Uh, poorly and uh, yeah very often um, a, a bombardment or a brisk charge would just lead to wholesale retreat so a lot of those early successes that the British had uh, were pretty cheap in, in every sense uh, gradually though as they pushed up the river and Turkish reinforcements were brought in from the north uh, an increasing component of the Turkish reinforcements were Anatolian peasants who were uh, extremely tough um, very natural um, proponents of trench warfare as the Allies found to their cost in the Dardanelles as well uh, it's, yet it's interesting about the trenches because they seem to have had a I mean it's almost uniform when the British fought their way into the Turkish trenches they were all filled with admiration for the extraordinary depth they achieved the British seem to have a lot of trouble um, making proper entrenchments very often in this sort of rock hard mud um, but it's also they, they, they seem to be very gifted at um, concealment you know, time and again in operational reports so you, you, you it, it, it appears that the trenches are invisible uh, from, from ground level. And, of course, this is where your absence of a, of a commanding high point or, or, air or aircraft um, it, it is so fatal. I mean, I say 10 years later, the whole, the, the, a lot of these problems have never arisen. Um, but, yes, so the British gradually came. Well, the British have an ambivalent attitude to the Turks in general, I guess. I mean, it's surprising how many... I do express great respect for um, what we call Johnny Turk, even though in another breath they would accuse him of sort of barbaric lack of, um, well, certainly lack of humanity. Um, they seem to be sort of routinely shocked by the, the brutality of the Turkish military system itself when they had any kind of contact with it, the way officers would treat their own men um, very brutally, um, the way the Turks treated British prisoners. Uh, so there is a kind of dimension of deploring the sort of barbarity of the Turks. Uh, and, and but also there is an admiration 
for their manly qualities. So um, it's hard to exactly strike that balance. Uh, it's interesting. That's a, of a piece, of course, with British thinking about race in India as well, right? The martial races, yeah. which may be lacking in certain civilized qualities, but have their have their virtues as well, right? Yes, indeed. And, and not, and of course, not unique to the British either. We should we should say. Uh, I, yes, I wouldn't <laughs> say the British are uniquely racist. No, but it does happen that in India they did, as you say, develop a particularly refined racial theory of martial qualities, um, or maybe cultural. I mean, I think that uh, I'm not sure whether they, uh, they thought it through at the level of what we now think of as kind of formal racism, but they saw each of those Indian subgroups as sort of religious cultures which have developed um, beliefs and social systems um, that either predispose them to uh, to be better or worse fighting. So they, um, because of the sort of complexity of the tapestry of um, peoples in India, they had to have a, quite a complex uh, kind of codification of martial qualities so that they could then structure the army to make sure that there was a balance of these of these elements in it. Uh, so it is certainly quite um, unusually highly codified. Well, I, I mentioned at the beginning that this is a book. It doesn't not that it suffers from presentism, but the significance of it, I think, is very much framed by the the present situation. And and the the final words of the book um, are, are the testimony of or a, a statement by Britain. I'm trying to put it in context quickly, but the um, a statement by Britain in front of the League of Nations that should Iraq prove herself unworthy of the confidence which had been placed in her, and the, the implicit answer to that is uh, that she does, um, the moral responsibility must rest with his majesty's government. Uh, and then you say it still it still does. So I wonder if, I wonder if you could say that it, um, uh, a few words about how this military campaign and how these political um, factors, a couple of the important ways that it does shape the, the current situation in the Middle East. Well, I guess, well, I was trying, well, it's not very original on my part, but to, well, I was saying there um, is that um, I think one of the outcomes of this indecisiveness of British policy during the war years and immediately afterwards was that they, entry, they ended up with a cobbled together compromise uh, structure, which was neither kind of one thing nor the other. It certainly wasn't the kind of British design system that Arnold Wilson wanted to create. Um, but the thing is, they were they were still havering over what kind of political structure uh, would be appropriate at the time when the insurrection of 1920 broke out. And that turned out, much to the British surprise, <laughs> to be a very formidable, possibly national, uh, certainly sort of province-wide insurrection, uh, one which uh, was enough to bring British administration crashing down for a couple of months. Uh, and that was sufficiently alarming to force the British to scramble to produce a political structure. Uh, and so I think the, 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 all of their ideas about gradually designing it and building 
democratic capacity, uh, which they did talk about. Um, and they, they were even Arnold Wilson was designing uh, constitutions for Iraq, even though they weren't very liberal-looking ones. But they were they were methodical. Uh, but I think all that idea of methodical uh, development just went by the board, and the British had to. They brought in um, one of their friendly Arab princes because they just had to have somebody, some. I suppose what you might now call a strong man, although actually Robert didn't think Faisal was all that strong, but they thought he could do the job. He would he could just about set up a regime which would enable the British to cut their losses and, and stand back a bit um, and, and run it right through a kind of what I hope could be a, a semi puppet regime. Uh, so I think the, unfortunately, at the same time, they took international responsibility for the, the quality of that regime through the mandate system, which is a League of Nations trusteeship. The British kind of signed on the dotted line, as it were, to say, okay, we guarantee that we will stand over this infant Iraqi state and make sure that it meets the world's required standards of civilization. Um, by the end of the 1920s, I think it was very clear that the state wasn't developing on the lines that the British really approved of, but they were faced with the same old dilemma that you have in many cases. Are you prepared to really do anything about it? You were going to insist on it being done the right way. You might have to go back in, and, and in the last resort, you might have to run the country yourself. Now, that was a cost the British simply weren't prepared to bear. So they signed off, if you like, the around state has been suitable for membership of the League of Nations. Um, I suppose, I mean, the, the League of Nations itself bears some slight responsibility there. I, I'm, I'm always surprised that they didn't take more trouble to inspect the, the credentials of states that it admitted as members. Certainly didn't take as much trouble as the European Union now does <laughs> to look at uh, uh, the convergence parameters of states that they're applying for membership. So there was a tendency to kind of rubber stamp it. But I think you know, that was an area where British prestige counted for a lot. That, you know, if the British said it was all right, then the rest, who were the rest of the world to argue? Because the British were the, the experts in honest democratic administration, and if they thought Iraq was okay. So I think there is an abdication of responsibility. And, yeah, it does... It does um, I mean, I, it, it, it projects into the present situation just in the sense that it always was a, a country which, I mean, has a certain unity and a certain disunity. Uh, again, the British spent some many hours discussing this, trying to work out whether it logically did make a single state. Um, there were some who thought it did. There were others argued that um, the differences, not least the differences between Sunni and Shia uh, Muslims, but also the sort of internal historical and geographical differences um, were too great and that there would be, uh, would be impossible to construct a coherent Iraqi state. Uh, again, those arguments were sort of brutally cut short at the very end. Um, uh, and probably the decision was finally made by oil 
which uh, was something that hadn't played such a big role in the campaign as you might have expected. But at the very end of the war, the British discovered oil. Well, they, they realized there was oil waiting to be exploited in Mosul. Um, so perhaps one of the most radical changes that happened at the end of the war was that Mosul, which was assigned to the French sphere of influence under the Anglo-French negotiations of 1916, was transferred to the British um, protected Iraqi state, again on the grounds that it would make the Iraqi state viable financially, but nobody really asked, well, how will it cope with the Kurdish population there? Um, they just sort of thought, oh, well, uh, they need the money from the oil, and let's hope everything will be all right. So I think that um, the, the, the fate of the Kurds, for example, over a long period, um, which they may just be beginning to escape from in part now, is something that the British were directly responsible for. Well, thanks again for that, uh, for joining me today and, and talking at such length uh, about this this interesting book. I'm I'm, hope, I'm hoping for those listeners who've uh, stuck through to the end that they that they uh, make the decision to to seek it out because it is it's not a, a book that prescribes or tells um, uh, you know it makes prescriptions for the present situation. But I think understanding that historical background and, and ranging from as you said the geographic situation and how the military sh- situation um, shaped the political outcome. That were that were made. It's a it's a really fasc- fascinating. Uh, you learn a lot about the uh, the you learn a lot about that part of the world from this book. Um, I like to conclude the interviews by giving you a chance to talk about what you're working on now. If there's anything exciting that you're that you're working on. Well, I'm back in Ireland now. Um, I'm kind of uh, because about five years ago I wrote a book on the 1916 rebellion in Ireland. Uh, which is a kind of, uh, this is what was taking place at the same time as the siege of Kurt, if you like. Um, and uh, you know, that kind of covered the uh, emergence of a coherent Republican military movement in Ireland uh, during the war period. Um, so what I'm now looking at is what happened at the end of the war. So it's going to be a book called uh, The Irish Republic, which will um, basically try to analyze the attempt to set up um, an an illegal counter-state in Ireland, which is both a political and, if you like, a a military thing. This is when the Irish Republican Army first uh, becomes uh, a visible force. Uh, so it's going to cover the period from um, 1919 through to the Irish Civil War in 1922-23 and again try and uh, figure out how successfully the Republic was established in the face of British attempts to repress it and what kind of impact that eventually had on the, uh, the political structure of Ireland. Is there a good uh, military history of the Irish Civil War? Of the Irish Civil War? Yeah. Um, well, the classic work is Mike Hopkinson's book, Green Against Green, um, which I, went, I don't claim to be transcending that as a military history, but I, I'm, because I'm hoping it's very rare to 
to to deal with the sort of whole period that I'm trying to deal with, you'll notice that um, you look into it. But most studies of what's sometimes called the Anglo-Irish War or the Irish War of Independence um, tend to end either with the military truce that was signed in July 1921 or with the Anglo-Irish Treaty that was signed in December 21. Um, So 1921 is one of those terminal dates that figures in loads and loads of books. Um, and then there are some studies of the Civil War, but as I say, it's relatively rare to 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 um, try to integrate uh, both the War of Independence and the Civil War uh, with this strange period in between, this period of the truce, which has been relatively little studied, in fact. So I'm hoping, as I go along, that um, it's some kind of new, uh, a new general perspective will emerge. Yeah. I ask, I ask because I sometimes have students who are interested in these kinds of small wars in general, and I think the, yeah. the, the Anglo-Irish War, the Civil War, and there's some wars in South America and so forth. I'm always looking for, for more references. So thanks for that. I, I also like to impose on the interviewees to, to um, ask them what I should be reading next, to whom should I interview for the next uh, segment of New Books in Military History. Is there something recent that you're reading and interested in? Actually, I I have to say that at the moment I'm um, because my head is so. Uh, <laughs> if I'm not working on Ireland, I'm working on terrorism, which is a kind of uh, third stream. <laughs> yeah. there. I didn't mention that at the beginning. Uh, unfortunately, I've just done a uh, an updated edition of uh, a little book uh, first produced about ten years ago. Um, called Terrorism, which is in the Oxford series of very short introductions. Um, they're bringing out a second edition, lamentably, I think, to commemorate the, well, to coincide with the 10th anniversary of 9-11. And, of course, there's going to be a spate of studies and conferences at the moment, which I'm, I'm scheduled to be at least three of these in September and October. So at the moment, my head is uh, entirely directed towards that. In fact, just sitting in front of me at the moment is uh, a new book about women terrorists, Mia Bloom's book, Bombshell, which I haven't just received and haven't started to read yet. So I'm not going to be a much help to you on the military history front at this point. You need to ask me again in a couple of years' time. Well, if you think of something, you can you can email me. I'd appreciate I will, I will, yeah. So. Well, thanks again for your time, and we'll, we'll sign off here, and, and uh, best of luck with the new projects. Okay, well, thanks. I've enjoyed talking to you. You've been listening to Charles Townsend talk about his new book, Desert Hell, the British Campaign in Mesopotamia, which just came out from Harvard University Press in 2011. You should find some space for this one on your bookshelf.